Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. All right. Well, good morning. Hey, a couple few weeks ago, I guess it was, uh, Pastor Peter and Pastor, Pastor Andrew Cromwell were having lunch together and they started chatting about things and found out they were both doing a series in the book of Exodus. And one of them had the bright idea of saying, hey, why don't we swap churches one Sunday morning and you preach at my church, I'll preach at your church. And they agreed to this crazy thing. So this is what's happening this morning. So Pastor Andrew Cromwell is here from Koinonia. Would you give him a great welcome this morning? I, I talked, so Peter's done one service over there at Koinonia already. I chatted with him briefly. He says that he just felt energized over there. And uh, he assured you that coming to a Baptist church, that might not happen, right? We have this reputation, friends, of, you know, kind of sitting on our hands and, you know, being real quiet and respectful. We can just toss it out the window today, okay? Even you at home, as you're watching, feel free to stand, raise your hands, say whatever comes to your mind. Look at that. You're, you are scared to death already, I can tell. You're scared to death. Hey, Andrew, thank you for being willing to be here. Koinonia Church has been so faithful in our community over the years and just such a, uh, has taken leadership among other churches and you've been a good part of that. So it's been uh, great working with you on a number of projects and, and just seeing your leadership over there. So thanks for uh, doing this for us and bringing God's word to us. Let me pray for you and uh, then we'll have a good time with him. Amen? Yeah. All right, you're sounding better already. God, we're so grateful. Uh, for who you are. Thanks for Andrew and for his leadership over at Koinonia. Thank you for the opportunity we've had as churches to partner together. And we just pray now your blessing on him. Would you anoint his words to us? These are not his words. These are your words to us. Would we be encouraged, challenged, and, and really walk out of here with a new energy and new excitement about what you have for us this week? So bless this time and bless him as he shares. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. It's all yours. Amen. Thank you, sir. Good morning. I did, I did record a, uh, a video introduction for Peter, for your pastor over at Koinonia, and I did say to my people, I said, make a lot of noise to throw him off his game because he's not used to it. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that they're making all kinds of noise and he doesn't know what to do with it. So that's what, what an honor and pleasure it is to be here this morning speaking with First Baptist. I love First Baptist. I love this church. You guys uh, are a foundational church within our community, a historical church that continues to thrive today, which is incredible. I know First Baptist is a church that builds solid people, people of faith, people that know how to love the Lord and just to be faithful within the community. And I was thinking about it this morning a little bit, just why I love First Baptist. And, and, and there are so many reasons uh, that I do, but, but one of the things that I thought about in particular was uh, a moment about 20 years ago, uh, it was the, uh, the first anniversary of 9-11 that we got together with First Baptist. Your pastor, Pastor Gary at that point, my dad who was a pastor of Koinonia at that point said, hey, let's do something together for the community. And, uh, and so we hosted this memorial event uh, they're in the Civic Center Park. I don't know if anybody remembers it or not, but we did that together, and something happened just in terms of uniting the hearts of our staff together, and that may have been the first time that I met Pastor Jeff. I don't know in that, in that capacity, but uh, just since then, I just feel a great love and admiration for this church, for your staff, and for who you are. I just want to say thank you to you, uh, and man, you guys have an amazing leadership team. 
uh, Pastor Carl leading worship today, who is just an, uh, so gifted, so loves the Lord, uh, just an honor uh, to even stand here and worship with him and worship with you. Of course, Pastor Jeff, who has been here for like uh, 3,000 years, uh, 100, 100 years, something like that, who, you know, I love guys who just won't leave. I mean, that's my story, right? I just won't leave because I'm following Jeff's example, and that's the only reason that I am at Koinonia today, and they finally said they, he's not given up, and they made me lead pastor. Um, and of course, Pastor Peter, who I've gotten to know over the last couple of years since he's come to town, and, and I just admire your pastor. I want to honor your pastor. He is a man that loves the Lord, that loves this church, that loves also the Big C Church and has an understanding that the fact that we have in this community one church under one pastor that is Jesus Christ. And we are all together on this team loving and serving him. And, and I just, just feel honored to stand in his pulpit today and share with you. I know the risks that in, are involved with inviting someone to speak in your pulpit. Uh, and, uh, and I take that seriously today. And I also trust that whatever I say today, he can clean up next week, right? I mean, he can take care of whatever heresies I say. Oh, I also want to say, I want to say thanks to First Baptist for your preschool, because at least one of my kids went through preschool here, and thank God he turned out good, probably better than all the other kids because of it. My kids are here today, at least a couple of them uh, are back there. I didn't make them sit in the front. I didn't, I'm not going to make them stand up like the normal pastor kid. I mean, I was a PK, and so all my life we'd visit churches, and we'd have to stand up, uh, and uh, so I won't force them to do that. But uh, if you look at them, just do me a favor, make, make them embarrassed for just a second. Pray for those kids because they're my kids and they, you know, I mean, they have to put up with a lot. Their mom's not here today because she wasn't feeling well, but uh, she's well, watching online. So, hey, babe, I love you. Um, we're going to continue our series, your series, in Exodus. And I love Exodus. I love this book. It is so powerful and rich, not only as a historical book, but when we look in the Old Testament, we look at Exodus in particular, we see a book that is I think page for page has more on it in terms of what we look back in terms of the stories of the Old Testament than probably any other book that's in the Old Testament. And there's more, I think, Christ imagery uh, there in Exodus than anywhere else. And, and actually today in our topic, we're going to really see that highlighted in a way that I think many of you are familiar with as we talk about the 10th plague. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, it seems so long, but was last week Mother's Day? Last week was Mother's Day, and your pastor, instead of preaching on the women of Exodus or mothers in Exodus, he talked about the, the nine plagues or the first nine, first nine of the ten plagues. What is up with this guy, right? What is up with Pastor Peter? Uh, so we're going to continue today and talk about the tenth plague. Um, it is graduation season. Right? Have you noticed it's graduation season? Everybody's graduating again. Yet again, here they come, right? The, the kindergartners, the eighth graders, the high schoolers, the college kids. Uh, it is graduation time. And, and whenever you're at a graduation, you always hear someone say something like, you know, well done, great accomplishment, you know, celebrate what's happening. But we also all, all know, and it's usually said as well, that that accomplishment, that moment, just is the beginning of. The, what's next? It's the beginning of the rest of the story, right? And so eighth graders, as wonderful, you know, we'll celebrate them and we'll say that's, that's fantastic. But really, I have to remind all my kids, you ain't done nothing yet, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing's happened yet in your life. Now, I, I don't, well, I, I am kind of a jerk, so I do say that. But, but I just remind them, this is just the start. This is just the beginning. Right? There's a transition now that's happening. There's an opportunity now for something else that happens after this powerful moment. And that's the way life is, right? I mean, life is all about these moments where we think 
this is it. I remember two years ago when they made me lead pastor at Koinonia, and I thought, this is it. I finally made it into the role that God has for me, and then COVID happened. And I thought, what in the world? Lord, didn't we hear wrong? I tried to give back my pastoral role back to the, my pastor Tim, my senior pastor. He wouldn't take it back. But I discovered, boy, it's just the beginning. It's just a beginning. Whatever moment of accomplishment, maybe you step into a new job, maybe you have a graduation moment, maybe there's a marriage, a wedding, right? Everybody remember if you're married, that wedding day that was incredible, everybody's dressed up, you spend all the money, all the friends come together, but then the real marriage happens. The real work happens because it all begins somewhere and the beginning is important, but then you have to go somewhere afterwards because if it was just about the wedding then there we wouldn't have the difficulty and the reality of marriages today because there's something that comes afterwards and so we're going to talk about that today really sort of the fact that this 10th plague uh, which we refer to as the Passover moment is really the beginning of the rest of the story it is a moment of power it's a moment of redemption it's a moment of God's faithfulness but it also sets the stage for what's going to happen with Israel after that moment and we should never make the mistake of thinking it's all about the moment really because the moment is just setting us up for what comes afterwards. And if you would, turn with me to Exodus chapter 11. We're going to look at 11 uh, and Exodus 11 and 12 today and look at this plague that probably most of you are familiar with. I mean, certainly even if you've never read the Bible, first of all, we've all heard of the 10 plagues. And then secondly, almost for sure we've heard of this 10th plague, which is when the angel of death is sent to go over the nation of Israel and to kill every firstborn son of every family within the entire nation of Egypt. And not only the firstborn son, but also the firstborn of uh, the animals. And so we're going to pick it up, uh, whether you're turning in your pages. Are you guys real pages, people, Bible, church, or you have, have you gone like my church has to the digital age? Both. Yeah, well, okay. We're, we're together then. I thought maybe you guys were holding true. I guess I have a tablet as well. All right. We're going to start in verse... Verse 4 of chapter 11 says, So Moses said, This is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who, has, who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. I mean, the plagues already, right? There's the, 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 been the worst of the worst. Worst storms that they've ever seen, worst hail storms that they've ever seen, worst experiences they've ever seen, and now this is the worst of the worst. It's culminating in something unimaginable, really. Verse 7, but among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and and Israel, because we see many of these plagues that God gave Moses, sort of the either the antidote or he made a division so that the nation of Israel of Egypt was affected by the plague, but the nation of Israel, the Hebrew children there in Goshen, were unaffected. And this is the case here as well, because Moses uh, is going to be able to give to the Hebrew children the antidote to this plague. Verse eight: All these officials of yours will come to me bowing down before me and saying, go you and all the people who follow you 
and after that I will leave. In other words, get ready, Pharaoh. You're going to beg me to get out of here with my people. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Right? We see that happen over and over again, every plague, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, even in 10, right? I'm gonna harden Pharaoh's heart, the Lord says. He's gonna say no, and that's what happens over and over again. Now, have you ever, when you have read this, have you ever asked yourself the question, why the firstborns? I mean, why not the secondborns or the thirdborns, right? And why the guys? Why not the girls? Why, why, why is it the firstborn male that seems to be picked on in this instance? Uh, and I think perhaps the answer is that found in, in that description right there, that the Lord is actually, he is making the Egyptians, the Egyptian gods bow. He's making the, the belief systems that the Egyptians have and their method of worship, he's turning it on its head and he's demonstrating time and again, that he is the Lord of all creation, that he has control over everything, everything in nature, everything in heaven, everything in earth. Uh, he has control over everything. And in particular, in Egypt, when it comes to the firstborn son, and this is a common thing in the ancient Near East, the firstborn son, it's almost like a cult of worship of the firstborn, right? Because the firstborn son is the one that is the treasured son. He's the one that is going to receive the inheritance. He's really the only important kid almost is what it seems like. Uh, and, and it's almost a thing of worship to have a firstborn son. If, you have a, if, if God forbid, if you have a daughter as your firstborn, then it's almost like you're cursed, right? And you just, you just sort of ignore her because you're looking for the son, the male heir. The firstborn son would have control of the family's inheritance. He would have control over what happened with all the other kids and the future of the family. He had control uh, in, in a powerful way. And so it was really a worship that was happening of the firstborn. And so it's not a surprise that God would say, I'm going to want yet again demonstrate to you that I have so much power that I'm going to turn over even the very system of the cult of worship of the firstborn that you have here in Egypt. Uh, and of course, he does that. And can you imagine losing, if your whole culture is based on the firstborn, losing all the firstborns within your culture the next day would just be a, a, a horrific horrific experience and I'll throw them into complete shambles, not knowing what to do. Uh, and, and so the firstborn is really important for the Egyptians and for in, in the ancient Near East. And I think it's interesting, if you look at the book of Genesis, you'll see that while the firstborns are mentioned very often, you'll also see that repeatedly God chooses another son other than the firstborn. And he keeps turning upside down this thing that happened within the culture of thinking that the firstborn is the only important one, right? And you think of Joseph, who is not the firstborn, and yet he's, he's Israel. He's the one that all of the sons come through, right? The 12 tribes of Israel come from Joseph, who is not the firstborn. He's like, wait, at the end, what's up with that? And that's not the only example. I mean, it happens over and over and over again throughout Genesis uh, that the Lord just turns this thing over and of course, we look at the New Testament and we, we see that in Colossians, it says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And then Hebrews, we learn that you and I are part of the fellowship of the firstborns. That the way that the Lord works is he doesn't 
play favorites. He doesn't say, well, you're the firstborn, so you're special. Oh, you're secondborn, you're not important. No, he says that all of you, you and I, all of us, men and women alike, we are all part of the fellowship of the firstborns. We are now, along with Christ, co-heirs that he has made us into this gathering of people who are all equal before the Lord. And he has decided, he said, no, there's no lessers than, there's no ones that are special because they're born before somebody else. No, all of us now are before the Lord as equal before him. And he has made it so for us. Now, let's go back to the text uh, in, in chapter 12. Uh, this is, of course, what we've read uh, that Moses has declared to Pharaoh, and now he goes back with Aaron, and he begins to give in chapter 12 the instructions to uh, the, the Hebrew children what they're to do in order to avoid this. So we're going to pick that up in, in, in verse 2. It says, this month is to be for you the first month. The first month of your year. So in other words, man, something right now is going to happen that is so significant that you're going to reset your calendars to this date. Like this day is not just another day. This day is the start of the days. Verse 3, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose, verse 5, must be year-old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire. I just want to pause for a second here. How specific the Lord is. Right? How specific Moses' instructions are to the children of Israel. Like it's telling, this is, if you want to receive, you know, freedom from the angel of death who is going to now look across the entire nation for every firstborn and he's going to deliver death. If you want to avoid that for your family, then you had better follow these instructions to the T. Right? And God is very specific over and over again to the people of Israel. And, and he's very specific with us as well. If we're following today, we'd better pay attention because God likes things done a certain way, right? He doesn't just want us to do whatever we want to do. He likes to be worshipped a certain way. He likes to be obeyed very specifically. And sometimes we get very loose with our worship. We get very loose with our following. We think, ah, you know, God, God will just accept me. It's like, well, God, he will forgive you and he will accept you. But he also wants things a certain way. Have you noticed God's a little picky sometimes? And he, he'll, he doesn't have any problem telling you the way that he wants it. And he'll make you uncomfortable and he'll mess you up until you align with him because he does want it a certain way. Okay, sorry, that was a little pastoral sidebar. Verse 8, I don't know, does, does your pastor, Pastor Peter, ever do that? Oh, okay, all right, I'm good, good company. All right, I was just making sure he's a real pastor. Verse 8, that same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Right and there we get the name uh, of this event, the Passover right there. Verse 12, on that same night I will pass through Egypt, 
and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And then if we jump down to verse 29, we see that the Lord does, in fact, as he always does, deliver on his promise. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. No special treatment. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. Wow. Can you imagine if we woke up tomorrow and every firstborn in Hanford was dead? I'm just, how many firstborns do we have here in the house? I'm just curious. Look around for a second. That's, there's a good number of people here that are firstborns. Uh, if you look at uh, uh, Peter Pollock, who is the great uh, theologian in the house, um, he, he reminded me that uh, there's probably about 20,000 households in Hanford. And then every household has a firstborn. It's a, it's a, lot, of, a lot of dead people uh, the next morning. A lot of anguish, a lot of wailing. What a nightmare, right? What a holocaust to wake up to. Uh, the next morning they wake up and there's more death than had ever been seen before. Their whole culture, you know, up, turned over. The whole leadership, the whole hope of what the next generation was going to bring was, was now brought to an end as the Lord brought the nation to its knees. And yes, this final plague brings Pharaoh to his knees, right? Pharaoh at that, he just cannot take any more. And he, can, he of course, calls Moses and Aaron and he says, get out, would you please? Would you please take these people and would you please get out of here because we can't take this anymore. Uh, and he releases the children of Israel into, into the wilderness. To this day, 3,000, 3,500 years later, depending on uh, how you calculate the, the years exactly, the people of Israel, the, the Jewish people still celebrate Passover. The Lord told them that day, this is, you're going to celebrate this forever. This is going to be the moment of freedom, the moment of redemption, the moment of, of being set free from bondage, the moment that you're going to step out of slavery, the moment that oppression is going to end. It's going to be a new beginning. It's going to be a new start. It's the beginning of everything for them. But of course, it is the beginning. It's not the end. It is the start. It's not the finish. Uh, and and I, I was thinking about this, and I just I, I was struck with the parallels here uh, between the Passover in the Old Testament and our Passover, who is Jesus Christ, in the New Testament. Uh, and as I was thinking about this message, I thought, well, you know, we really could call this message, and so it begins. Because the Passover is that beginning thing, and for the Jewish people, it all begins with the Passover. And then for the Christian people as well, it all begins with Passover. And I just want to take a few moments and kind of walk through what we just read and highlight the parallels between each one of these for the Jews and for the Christians. We should never make a mistake that when we read Exodus, this is just nice history that we need to know because we're Christians and we just need to know the Jewish background. Now, this, this is right here for us right now today as Christians. When we read this, Christ is all over the pages of Exodus and he's right here in this story of the Passover. And so when we read this actual event that happened, we're actually also reading our spiritual history and the spiritual reality that we live in today. And so for the Jewish people, right, it all begins with Passover, uh, and it is a new time for them. 
As, as we said, you know, Moses told them, this is when you're going to set your calendars. It's a, new, it's a new month. This now is your first month. It's not as if we're erasing the history of the past, but what we're doing is we're making a mark and saying, now this moment right here, right now, this is the start of something new. It all begins here. It all begins now. And from this point forward, there is going to be something New and the calendar has been reset, and now the history of the people of Israel forever is marked with the day, with the moment of Passover. So it's a, it's a new time that is given to them. It's also a, a sacrifice that was given for everyone. Now, the Jewish people were familiar with sacrifice. I mean, blood sacrifice was an ancient Near Eastern tradition from the very beginning, right? We see it from the very first pages of Genesis that sacrifice and blood of animals was something that was recognized that was needed to cover the sin of humanity. And so sacrifice is not a new concept, but the, the very specificity that God gives Moses to tell the people of Israel, you need to get a lamb, and the lamb needs to be for everyone in Israel, everyone in, that's a firstborn in the entire nation of the Hebrews. And he, and he says very specifically, hey, even if you have a small family, you can combine your family with another family so that everyone in, uh, in the entire nation is covered. There is enough for everybody. There's a sacrifice for everyone. No one's going to get excluded. If you're poor, you're not going to get excluded. If you're on the wrong side of the tracks, you're not going to get excluded, right? Everybody is included in this sacrifice. And he says very specifically, we're not going to leave anyone out. Thirdly, the sacrifice, of course, has to be perfect. It's a perfect lamb that he says. This is, this is not uh, just any lamb. This is not, you know, the, the leftover lamb. This is not the second one. This is the first one that's perfect, that is without blemish, that's of a certain age. It's very specific, Moses says, the kind of sacrifice that you need to select because the blood ultimately is going to go over the doorpost. It goes over the doorpost because when the angel of death comes, Death has been assigned to every firstborn in the nation, both Egypt and the Hebrew nation. All of them, all the firstborns have been assigned and deserve death, but because the blood is from the perfect sacrifice of that firstborn lamb or goat, it's over the doorpost. The word says that when the angel of death comes over, he's going to see the blood and he's going to pass over. And death will not visit that house. And so the perfect lamb is so incredibly important. And of course, you guys know where we're going here in terms of talking about the perfect lamb in just a moment. There's the bitter and the sweet taste that is combined in this experience, right? He says, okay, you're going to take the lamb, you're going to sacrifice it, put the blood on the doorpost, now you're going to eat it. There's going to be a meal. And you're going to roast the lamb, and then you're going to eat the lamb along with some bitter herbs. And actually today in the celebration of Passover, they, they're, they're, that's actually part of the thing that they repeat today in the Jewish tradition. If you've ever done a, a Seder, a Passover Seder experience, which sometimes we do in churches, there's that experience of the bitterness along with the sweet. The sweetness of the lamb, the sweetness of the meat of the lamb, the strength that comes from the lamb, but then there's also this bitter taste that they had that, that's almost like a reminder that this is, as wonderful as this is, there's some difficulty here. This is not without some, uh, some pain and some bitterness. And then, then lastly, how are they to eat it? They're to eat it with a, with a posture of preparation. This is not a Thanksgiving meal 
that they just are going to be able to sort of eat so much turkey and that they have a tryptophan ha- hangover afterwards and they're going to be, you know, out on the couches afterward. This is, this is a moment of preparation of readiness. He says, hey, even the way that you eat it, you're supposed to eat it fast. You're supposed to take your cloak and tuck it into your belt, right? So because you can't run, right? If you have, ladies, you know, if you have a dress that goes down to, to your knees, it's kind of hard to run in that. So you have, to, you have to prepare yourself. And the Lord is saying to the people of Israel, get ready because this meal is not like celebration. It's over. We're just going to party here. This meal is like we're going to eat it and we're going to get out of here. And so we need to be ready for what comes next. And, of course, what comes next is the journey to the promised land. Now, it all starts for the Jewish people with the Passover, and for the Christian people, it all starts with the Passover. It's the same thing for us today. You and I, in Christ, have been given a new time. Jesus, when he came in his ministry, he said, listen, the promised time of God is here. It's now. Right now, there's an open heaven. Right now, salvation is available. Right now, new life is for you. Right now, there's a water. There's a river of living water that is given, that's promised to all those who would desire to drink of the river. They will never thirst again. This is the new time that we have in Christ, right? He said, the kingdom of God is near. If you want it, repent and believe. Come into the kingdom because there's something for you. And today is a new day. There's going to be a transformation of what kingdom you belong to. You're going to move from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You're going to move to a before Christ to an after Christ. Behold, all things have become new. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And so everything begins, and all of us have, if you know Christ, all of us have a before Christ and after Christ moment. We have that date that we know something changed, everything changed at that point. There's a new time that we have been given on our Passover. There's also, of course, a sacrifice that is for everyone. It's not just for certain people. The sacrifice that Christ offers is for all. Many times we make the mistake of thinking, well, if I'm good enough, if I do good enough things, so if I clean myself up first, then maybe Christ will receive me or he will accept me. But we are so wrong about that. In 1 Peter 3.18, it says, Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust. That means he is just, we are unjust. There are none that are just. There is no one that doesn't deserve death. When we think of that angel of death that's going to go over the nation of Egypt, that every single firstborn is assigned death. Let me tell you, folks, we are all, we have all been assigned death. When we were born into this world, we were born into sin, and all of us have the wages of sin that we're carrying each and every day. There's nothing that we can do about it. There's no amount of good works that can erase it. There's nothing that we can do to hope to somehow get God's attention to say, oh, yes, he deserves it, she deserves it. No, no, this is a sacrifice that is freely given. That is a gift from the Lord that he decides his perfection for our imperfection, his purity for our impurity that he has decided that he will give himself to everyone. There is no one that is not worthy because we are all unworthy. In other words, we can all receive. So there's a sacrifice for everyone. No one is left out. There's, of course, the lamb that is perfect. Hebrews says that by one sacrifice, he 
that is, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The only reason that Jesus' sacrifice was able to erase our sin was because he was perfect. He was without sin. He was without blemish. Even though he was tempted, it says in 1 Corinthians, he, knew, he did not know sin. He always said no. And because he was per- perfect, because his whole being was made perfect, we then can enter into that perfection because he was able to give himself once and for all. No more sacrifices needed, thank God. Because he has become our Passover lamb. And then, of course, the bitter taste along with the sweet. There is the reality that in following Christ, yes, we experience new life, but there is also a crushing that goes along with it. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross. If you're going to follow me, there's going to be a price. If you're going to follow me, you're going to have to be willing to give up. You're going to have to be willing to die to yourself. Because unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it won't yield fruit. Death actually is part of the secret of living in Christ, is being able to receive the bitterness of the death of our flesh, the death of our desires, the death of our way, and be able to receive from him something that's alive and new. The sweetness of the lamb, the sweetness of the Passover lamb washes all of that up, but we certainly have to go through the bitterness of life, the bitterness of reality. And then finally, of course, that posture that they had to eat in and that you and I have to walk in today, the posture of departure. Jesus says to his disciples, listen, be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning. He says, be ready, don't fall asleep. He talked about it all the time. He said, don't, be careful that you don't get lulled to sleep by this world, by the comforts of this world, by the way that things are. And, it's, and you and I today have to be reminded, and I have to remind myself, hey, it's not about getting comfortable. It's not about arranging your life in such a way that you can have things just perfect. Because as soon as we do that, we discover we have fallen asleep. And we are at the risk of missing living with a posture of readiness. Jesus says, get your shoes tied. Get ready to run. Make sure you're, you're, you're wearing you're that cloak and you're tucking it into your belt that you're not falling asleep, that you're not eating just a Christmas and Thanksgiving dinner and thinking it's all good and just waiting. No, no, there's a posture that as followers of Christ, we are called to live in every day. Yes, Passover is the beginning and now it's time to run. And we need to run and keep running all the way through our life. Run, right, Paul says, run as if you are running a race. Run in a way that you will win. Don't fall asleep. Don't get out of shape. Don't forget what your purpose is. We are to run all the way to the end. The Passover, of course, is not just a great story. It's an invitation and it's a reminder an invitation for us today, right now, that we would remember God's faithfulness and his invitation, his faithfulness to his people that he's never going to fail, and his invitation to each one of us to live for him, to live under his sacrifice and in his freedom. And so I want to just close with these two questions for you, and then I'm going to pray in just a second. But the two questions are the questions... I think that all of us need to ask, or all of us need to answer rather, all of us need to answer the question, are you ready to be free? 
If you don't know Christ today, there is freedom on the other side of the Passover lamb. It's very possible to be in church. I grew up in church, been in lots and lots of services. I know what it's like to hear the message of Jesus' love and his acceptance and his grace every single weekend. I know what it's like to, to hear the prayer, the sinner's prayer repeated over and over again, but there's something different that happens when finally you step over and you realize, no, actually that's for me. I need that. I have to, I've not been walking in Christ. I have not ever crossed over the line. I've never come to the place of complete surrender to him. And it could be that you have been in church all of your life and never stepped over the line and you still are on this side. And I want to tell you, you're still on the side living under the penalty of death. But on the other side of Passover, on the other side of Christ, on the other side of receiving him is freedom. Living in freedom, living a new life with a new beginning and with a new purpose and with eternal life at the end. The second question I want to ask is, are you ready to leave? It's not only are you ready to be free, but are you ready to leave? In other words, are you ready to live life in such a way that you remember that this is not your home? Egypt was not Israel's home, and guys, America is not our home. As wonderful as America is, America is like Disneyland, frankly. It's incredible. If you travel in the world, you, you realize very quickly how privileged we are, how wonderful it is to live here, how many blessings we have. But if, we're, if we don't forget, or if, if we're not careful, we'll very quickly forget that this is not our home, that our citizenship is in heaven. It's not on earth. That ultimately we are to live ready to go, ready for his purposes, and today, our life really is always to be challenged by the reality of Jesus' calling that there is bitter along with the sweet. Are we taking up our cross? Are we laying down comfort? Are we laying down our personal preferences? Are we laying down our personal desires? Are we living truly for him? Are we living truly for others? There's always yet another sacrifice to give. Have you noticed that? Jesus is always asking for something else. The moment we think we got it figured out, we discover, what? You want that too? Are you ready? Are you ready to leave? Are you ready to step up? Are you ready to put your game face on? Are you ready to tie your shoes? Let's make sure that we're always ready. Would you bow your head with me, Lord Jesus? Thank you for Passover. Thank you, Lord, for, for the perfect sacrifice that you have given us. Thank you for saving Israel 3,000 years ago, and thank you for saving us today. Thank you for the way that you have opened heaven, that you've given us a new day, a new time, a new name, a new purpose, and Lord, today we want to live for you. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ and you're not living in that Passover lamb experience, I just want to invite you to simply step over the line and to give up and to give everything to the Lord. It begins with simply saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I, I've chosen my own way. I've done my own, I, I've done my own thing, but today I give up. I give up to you. I give in to you. I'm asking you for salvation. I'm asking you for help. I'm asking you for a new start and a new life, a new empowerment. I'm asking for your spirit, Lord, that you would walk with me, that you would cover me, that you would wash me, and that you would change me from this day forward. Empower me, Lord, to live differently today. Very, very simple, but it changes everything. And today, if you're here, perhaps your prayer is simply that 
willingness to say to the Lord, Lord, yeah, I, I, I do want to be ready to leave. I'm ready to give up. I'm ready to give up my comfort. Maybe, you, maybe the Lord has even been speaking to you throughout this message or this last week and you realize there's some things that have crept in. There's some areas that you've gotten comfortable with. There's perhaps some sin that, that you, you sort of have, have made an agreement with. And, and now the Lord is saying, it's time to give it up. You need to put your shoes back on. You need to re-engage at a higher level. You need to step in because I've given all for you. It's time for you to give all for me. Lord, would you give us the courage to do what you desire, to walk in your way and to be ready to run. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.